continuing through the Gospel of Mark. Today we begin chapter 2. Well, last week I talked about how God's ways are not our ways. I did this again first service. Get the earplugs out. wonder why my eyes pulse when I speak. <laughs> Something with the pressure there. Anyway, just for that last song, that's all. God tells us categorically through the writings of the prophet Isaiah, which I cited, uh, I think, last week, that this idea of God's ways not being our ways can end up just chafing, and chafing against our very faith. You know, it's hard enough trying to, trying to, to keep the right attitude, the right focus, the right vision. It's hard to stay faithful in the challenging times of life when, when, when things make sense. To us, why they are the way they are. But what I mean is, is if I have a problem of absenteeism, you know, calling into work, you know, with good reason, mind you, but calling into work seemingly pretty repetitively, and uh, I walk in one day and suddenly I'm let go because I'm unreliable. Now, candidly, I mean, I, you know, I probably won't like it. I may even protest, but in my gut, I know that I'm not much good to my employer, and I'm not much good to my coworkers if I'm not present. I understand that. On the other hand, when I've been at work through all of the winter colds and the flu seasons for, for you know, a few years anyway at this, this place where I work, and, and I've been so sick on certain days that I want to just curl up and die, but no, I drag myself into work because I know that my absence puts a burden on everybody else who's there having to take up the slack for me. And I walk in one day and I'm, I realize that uh, some people have been laid off, namely me, when others of much lesser reliability and even seniority still remain. That's hard to swallow. And honestly, even having good biblical answers are not always comforting. When I was fired for politely declining to commit a federal offense for one of my employers, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 was a verse that I was very acquainted with. This is what that verse says. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently, you endure it, this finds favor with God. Well, okay, yeah, all right, got it memorized, said it to myself. It may find favor with God, but guess what? It doesn't find favor with my creditors. God's ways are not my ways. The rest of the story to that particular little anecdote is that the Lord had been moving Barbara and I both toward pastoral ministry for about a decade. And by the time I was starting to kind of realize that, and I was starting to see that, I was too settled to pursue what both God wanted for us, but also what I really wanted for us. But I was just, I was too entangled in life to just kind of pack up and go where God wanted us to go. So having been booted unceremoniously, guess what? We were now free to pursue both his plans for me, but also my real dreams 
for our family. But again, that is not the way I would have scripted it. My ways are not your ways. Well, just to highlight, again, the past couple of weeks' messages, Mark's, uh, we've talked about this, Mark's quick change method of telling the life of Jesus helps us to see aspects of his coming as Lord and Savior that really do stand out from the other three gospel writers. And the reason they stand out is precisely because of the way Mark abbreviates or condenses the Savior's activities. I think we're all familiar with the uh, the cliche that, you know, hey, you can't see the forest through the trees. Well, that can even be a factor when we are reading the Bible, missing the obvious. So Mark passes over, or again, he, he compacts many of the trees in that gospel forest so that we are able to more easily single in on, to focus in on one mighty oak here and there that might otherwise be missed if there were more detail, more activity. The massive oak tree that Mark focused us on in last week's pericope was the tree of miracles. So many ministries today have gone awry because of inappropriate emphasis on the miraculous. If you weren't here last week and you missed that message, you might be questioning, in fact, you might even be annoyed at what I just said. But Mark is absolutely unambiguous when he is showing us that Jesus' miracles of casting out demons and healing the sick proved in actuality to be an enormous hindrance to the real purpose for his coming. And so under cover of darkness we read that Jesus heads out to the desert to get away from who? From nasty people? To get away from nasty crowds? No, he did it to get away from needy crowds. Legitimately needy crowds. But he's found by his disciples. And I detect, literally, there's some perturbance in what they say to Jesus. And after they find him, they say to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Now, I am not anti-the-miraculous. I am not anti-supernatural. But having followed what was called, this is a few years ago, and many of you will be familiar with it, what was called the Toronto Blessing, and then on the heels of that spawned what was called the Brownsville Blessing, and really predating those things by a few years was what was called the Latter Rain Prophets and or the Kansas City Prophets. And yes, through those things, Certainly the Lord mercifully was able to use those things for his purposes. God is able to do that even when we mess things up because God is good. But my review of such movements, which focus more on the gifts than on the gift giver, end up hurting many more people, perhaps many more than they ever help. One of the worst things they do because it lingers, is establish a very warped view of God and either diminish or pervert the very message of salvation. And so in Mark, the people are looking for Jesus 
so that he can heal them and that he can liberate them from whatever debilitates, whatever discourages, and whatever destroys them. In response to his frantic disciples who are urging Jesus to return to the crowds in the city, Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 1, verse 38, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. Why? Because that is why I came. If you've ever wondered why Jesus told people who he healed not to tell anyone, and why he commanded the demons to silence, listen to last week's message. To my true astounding, I think it may be the most positive response by personal reply to me than any message I've given in 24 years, which honestly I still don't understand that, but that's the truth. So Jesus and his disciples leave and they go to Galilee for several days, where the same thing happens as when they were in Capernaum. And so in chapter 2, Mark has them back again, and word gets out that, guess who's back? The roving miracle crusade is back in town. And this is what Mark writes. We had come back to Capernaum several days afterward. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room. There was not even room near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So Jesus, you see, is here and he's staying focused on his mission as the Savior of mankind. His mission was what he tells us, to seek and to save those who were lost. Continuing. And they, be, and they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, let me take this vignette at this point and let me dissect it, stating what is probably obvious but nonetheless important. Jesus left Capernaum to get away from the crowd's who were seeking the wonder-working miracle man. He stated in chapter 1, verse 38, that he did not come to be the roving miracle crusade, but rather to preach the message of deliverance from sin and death, what we call the gospel. And so they go to other towns where he wasn't as well known, making it possible for him to preach the good news of redemption. But then he heals a leper verse 40, 45 of chapter 1, who against Jesus' stern warnings goes blabbing to everyone about how Jesus healed him. And the exact same problem occurs that caused Jesus to have to leave Capernaum in the first place. So Jesus returns to Capernaum, and now he's in what is assumed to be the house of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And why is Jesus there? He is there to preach the gospel of salvation. The house was packed. And Mark adds the detail that there wasn't any room, not even by the door. So Jesus is there. He's doing exactly what he came to do, that is, to be the Savior of man, who because of man's sin was destined to an eternity in hell. A little elaboration on that in a few minutes.
because the old idea of hell has gone out of fashion. So they jammed into this physical structure. Presumably the house, that is when they were in this confined space, they could contain the crowds to one degree or another, obviously, just by physical constraint. And so by that way, Jesus was able to preach the word with relative focus on his reason for coming. Oh, but wait. As Jesus is speaking about the devastating condition of man's sin and how sin is what empowers death and consigns all men to a Christless eternity, there's noise coming from above them. And at first they probably just dismiss it, but it's getting louder. And then more things start to happen. Pretty quickly, dirt starts filtering through the ceiling. Because the roofs of these homes in Palestine in this age were generally made of, if you were fairly well-to-do, you could afford to put beams down, and if you were really wealthy, you could put tiles on top of the beams, but then you would lay dirt and sod and pack it all down to help kind of waterproof it. And then there was a stairway on the outside of these houses, because you can imagine such a roof needed pretty routine maintenance. So they're jammed into this house where there's virtually no place to even move. They hear noise, and there's dirt now starting to filter through the ceiling. And then not before long, there's some actually pieces of grass and turf are starting to fall through. And again, you can't really go anywhere. And they're like, you know, you're kind of getting a little annoyed, not to mention distracted. I think about what we get distracted by when we're in here on a Sunday morning, you know, a baby. And right away, man, we're distracted, right? Imagine sitting here now while I'm preaching. And all of a sudden, we hear a noise up on the ceiling, and and insulation just starts kind of falling down, especially you people in the center section there. And before long, sheets of rubber, the rubber lining on the roof that's up there for waterproofing, just kind of starts falling down in six-by-eight sheets on people. You think that would be distracting? Packed in this house, there's a hole eventually that appears in this roof, and a board is beginning to be let down through the hole, both the hole of which has got to be pretty substantial because there is a person coming through. And everything Jesus was talking about and all of what Jesus was focusing on now is totally sidetracked by what really is an incredibly selfish thing to do, if not criminal. I mean, vandalism? What, breaking and entering? I don't know what the laws were like back then. They're dismantling someone's house. Why? Because they had a need. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie, What About Bob? I don't recommend it because I don't recommend movies. But if you have, you know what I'm talking about. I need, I need, I need, I need. Dr. Marvin, I need. Yeah. I was on the floor first time I saw that both laughing and then crying, and I said to Barb, that, that reminds me too much of like work. Let's, you know. Nobody in here, of course. of course. Well, here comes a man on a board. And you remember that when anyone is fixed on their own personal needs, whims, and personal desires, when that becomes your fixation, nothing else and no one else matters. 
And so again, here comes this man on this board being lowered by ropes, and people have to somehow, I mean, just by forceful elbow, moving aside, squirming, to get, you know, a little bit away. Otherwise, they're going to be beamed by a body on a board. Well, that's awkward. Through sheer diligence, through sheer determination, and rude inconsideration and self-absorption, the paralyzed man now is smack dab in the presence of the healer. For everything else that I've already noted with the problem of the whole roof thing, I have to admit that took guts. That took a resolute belief to do something so egregiously over the top. And Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, My son, you are healed. If someone has a Bible with you and you happen to be following here, that is not what it says, is it? Jesus, verse 5, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Huh? By the way, that's called a non sequitur. A non sequitur is a statement that does not logically follow the statement that preceded it. I just knew you'd want to know that. If you're the guys who are lowering this man down, and you're the man who is awkwardly lying now, to say the least, in front of dirt and grass-splattered people who I imagine, again, are none too thrilled with this intrusion, he's thinking, my sins are forgiven? Sin shmin. And that is not Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Do you think for a moment that the paralytic, do you think for a moment that the people who were so graciously determined to get this paralyzed man in front of the unparalyzing man had any thought whatsoever in their minds, any concern in their hearts, that they had any anxiety in their souls about sin? Come on. Now, let's pretend Hey, will you pretend with me? Let's pretend Jesus gave the man exactly what he came for. The paralyzed one is said to his family that, hey, 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 this Jesus, that guy who casts out demons and he healed people, he's back in town. You gotta get me to him. Jesus can help me. This horrid burden that I have been straddled with can be eliminated by this Jesus. I can be normal again. And sure enough, Jesus heals him. He's no longer paralyzed, which is exactly why he came to the healer. And four months later, he is dead of congestive heart failure. He dies without a saving faith. And he commences an eternity in a place the Bible tells us was prepared for the devil and his angels. A place commonly called hell. Like I said, gone out of fashion in the world years ago. 
it has pretty much gone out of fashion in the church that wears the name of Jesus Christ. George Barna has done numerous surveys tracking Christian belief and how it changes over the years. And over the years, if you're starting here with the evangelical, so-called Bible-believing, born-again Christian belief in hell, according to the Scriptures, that it is a real place, it's not a metaphor, it's not a story, it's not an allegory, but as a real place where people, all people, who are not saved, a la Jesus Christ, meaning, oh, you've got to watch the way I use words today, not Allah, Allah means because of Jesus Christ. They will be there for all eternity in a place where there is no influence of God. Over the years, the belief by the evangelical Bible-believing church has gone from here, and it just continues down now to where many so-called evangelicals are universalists. Oh, I love Jesus. I love the Bible. I believe it absolutely. But I also know that God wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't send anybody to hell. Contrary to all information we have, Genesis to Revelation. Oh, I know that Jesus is the only way for me, but I, re- I, I believe in my heart that all roads lead to heaven. And so part and parcel of that comes this total dilution of the biblical idea of hell. So let me try ever so ineptly to help us be a little more in tune with what it is that people who die without Jesus Christ are going to experience. They are not going to a myth. They are not going to an allegory. They are not going to a made-up place. They are going to a real place that was prepared for Satan and his angels. And it is a place where there is absolutely zero, no influence of God and His goodness in any way, shape, or form. Now let me put this in perspective. Think about your life right now on this planet and everything we know that has gone on through the ages in history, but even what's going on right now all over the world. Think of every bit of form of evil that you can think of. Just right now in the news. You don't have to go back into history even. You have no conception of what goes on in the world of pornography concerning children. The nastiest of evil. We know of all the children, the girls, who are being kidnapped and trafficked as slaves of one stripe or another. Destroyed for life and then killed, murdered. We know about, of course, Christians being beheaded for their faith. That's minor. Muslims are being mass killed because they don't believe quite like the ISIS Muslims believe. You got the whole Sunni Sufi Shiite issue throughout, and they can't even get along, and they don't even like each other. And this one's an infidel to that one. Think about all the injustices that have gone on throughout the ages. Think about, again, the, the, the despicable things that go on and people get away with. Think about the pain and the suffering and the anguish. Now, hear this. Planet Earth right now and all of that that is going on is not nearly, not even infinitesimally as bad and evil, as wicked as it could be once 
God pulls away his constraining influence of mercy, which is called God's general grace over the universe. Hell is that place where there is no constraining influence of God whatsoever. Now, let me give you a little phrase here that may help you one day, because I know you've all probably heard it. You're talking to somebody, and it may be totally in very casual conversation, but something comes up, maybe, I don't know, about hell, or again, it's just in jest, and you've heard it. Ready for it? Well, at least I'll be there with all my friends. Okay, hear this. Hell, biblical definition, no influence of God in any way, shape, or form. Friendship emanates out of the character of God. We only understand and experience friendship because of God's common mercy and grace over the planet. If you think you're going to die and go to hell and be with all your friends, you will not have a single friend in hell. You've probably heard this little catchphrase. It's, 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 I think it's theologically profound. And that is that for the believer in Jesus Christ, not the, not the pretend, not the facade, not the, the games and all that, but the real deal for the believer in Jesus Christ, our lives here on this planet, this will be as close as we ever get to hell. Praise God. For the unbeliever or for the one who is faked out and they think they know Jesus, this is as close as they will ever get to heaven. Think about that. Meditate on that. There's not going to be any friends. There's not going to be any raucous partying in hell. Woo! There is no earthly suffering. There is no earthly anguish or sorrow that comes even close to what it waits in hell. Oh, but the paralytic the paralytic knows his need. My need is for healing. Now we're still in. Let's pretend. Not about the hell. That wasn't pretend. We're back to the, the vignette now playing let's pretend. The paralytic sees his need as healing, and Jesus now gives him exactly what he wants. Not a very compassionate God. Not much of a Savior. He was healed, but he died in disbelief four months later of congestive heart failure. Well, scripturally, we know that Jesus is neither of those things. He is not an uncompassionate God, and he's a great Savior. And so after the people who brought the paralytic going through all of that work and embarrassment, destroying a stranger's roof. Jesus doesn't say, paralysis, be gone. He says, your sins are forgiven you. And I believe that Mark, through the Holy Spirit, is trying to get us to see the point of the narrative is neither paralysis nor healing. It is much more important. And to make sure that we get the point, 
Mark brings in the scribes who we met earlier in this Gospel of Mark. And we know that the scribes, they were part of the Pharisee sect. They were Jews. They were educated. They knew religion. They knew Judaism. And the scribes came from all over, according to another account. And Mark doesn't tell us that. Luke tells us that. And some of the scribes were here in this house. And they were sitting there. And they were reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this is the point. It is only blasphemy if Jesus isn't God. And if Jesus is not God, He is no Savior. For only God can satisfy God. And what does Mark do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? In inspired cleverness, Mark slips in another miracle, albeit a much more subtle one. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in His Spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. (laughs) Jesus, the mind reader. Go figure. Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? I, oh, if there was only an iPhone then, I would so love to have seen a selfie of their faces. When Jesus just calls them out and they're like, You know, it's like, you know, the bubble. Jesus sees the bubble. And they're like, what? And now Jesus explains. He explains for us, not for the scribes necessarily, or if at all. Jesus explains for us and for all of Christendom. He explains where he has been going with this household meeting the entire time. At first blush, it seems like Jesus' attempts to preach the Word have been hijacked by the paralytic. And it might seem like, you know, Jesus switched persona from the calloused theologian to the marshmallow healer. But in fact, Jesus is going to use this intrusion of the self-absorbed sick man to slam dunk his thesis for why the Messiah Savior is in their midst, for why He came to earth in the first place. It is a repetitive theme in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, knowing the scribes' theological errors, asks them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Try and demonstrate that. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your pallet and walk? Okay, I need a sinner. Oh, here's a good one. And I say, Scott, Brother Scott, I'm telling you, on the authority of myself, your sins are forgiven. You can't disprove it. I mean, you can give data you can give information i understand but you can't you can't tangibly physically you can't disprove it nor can i prove it anybody can say to anybody hey your sins are forgiven but now let's say mr hanker 
is paralyzed. We're not talking about a finger. We're talking about quadriplegia. I mean, he is paralyzed. And now I say to Scott, on my own authority, because I am God, paralysis be gone. Take up your pallet and walk. I'm on the spot. Because he either gets up, takes up his pallet and walks, and he's no more paralyzed. And you can't argue with it. He either is or he isn't. There's a logical progression here. Saying your sins are forgiven cannot be tested. Cannot be proven or disproven. Saying you are healed certainly can. But, verses 10 and 11, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Boom and ka-boom. Now, it's interesting that it is the medical issue of paralysis that God used, as opposed to something less obvious, as opposed to depression. Oh, why did you come today? Oh, because I'm chronically depressed and I'm on medications and everything else. In the name of Jesus, depression be gone. Well... He may know. He truly may know because he knows what his life was like. He knew what was going on. He knew he's gotten rid of all his antidepressants and everything else. And from that day forward, he has daily reminders that that was true. But you know what? All anybody else can do is say, so how are you feeling? And even that is up to, well, you know what? Maybe you made dietary changes and it really wasn't, you know, like biomedical depression. But you're, I mean, you can still sidestep it. A paralyzed individual, there's no sidestepping. There's no what-ifs. There's no yeah-buts. There's no fancy-schmancy hocus-pocus. There's no three days later, oh, yeah, my migraines or whatever it was, pray for your back. Paralysis is instantaneously verified by any and all. So, what started out as an awkward intrusion to us, and a distraction to the Son of Man's incarnational reasons for coming here, actually ends up being a profound and irrefutable demonstration that Jesus is none other than God Almighty, and as such, He is qualified and He is capable to solve the deadly dilemma of mankind's sin, for which the penalty is both physical earthly death as well as eternal spiritual death. In the Savior Messiah, both body and soul are restored, never again to experience physical impairment or death. So, they were in this house so that he could preach. Instead of being distracted and thwarted by the throngs who wanted miracles and wanted demons cast out. Did Jesus accomplish his purposes? Verse 12. The paralytic got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. 
so that they were all amazed and they were glorifying God saying, whoa, we've never seen anything like this before. The vignette is not about healing. It was to give tangible, verifiable evidence that Jesus was the only one who could and who would conquer sin and death. The convenience to the infirm man in this vignette was coincidental to God's greater purposes. But now lest you get the wrong idea, let me talk out of the other side of my mouth. Because as quickly as I say what I just said, and that's true, I must add that the healing of the leper just six verses prior to this is precisely because Jesus is a compassionate Savior God who does in fact enjoy healing for the sake of convenience and comfort. I had every intention of stopping there as late as yesterday morning. Not because I thought it was a good place to stop, but because the next couple verses were stumping me. Verses 13 and 14. I could not make sense with my own principles of interpretation. Remember the juxtapositioning we talked about of one passage to another passage, and all of that is inspired and all of that's important. So we've got this whole thing that I just went through now, and then all of a sudden we start reading what is a completely new vignette that Mark introduces. This is what we read. He went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And I thought on it, and I thought on it, and I meditated. I said, Lord, I, man, I am not... What do I do with that? It seems out of place. It seems like there's not real connection there. But I know better about your word. And I said, I got the perfect solution. I'll just stop before I get there. And then maybe people will forget before next week. No. So I come in yesterday morning. And I'm reading it over one last time. And it was like, Eureka! The calling of Levi fits perfectly with the calling of the fishers of men that we read about in chapter 1. And it wraps up, it wraps up the story of the paralytic being healed who was in need of forgiveness of his sins more than he was in need of anything else, including his healing of paralysis. The purpose of Jesus coming as Savior of mankind demands the urgent need for more fishers of men to get the news out that Jesus went to that little house to get the news out about and did so effectively. But he needs more fishers of men to continue to do that lest people spend eternity in hell not knowing. We call it the message of salvation, the gospel proclamation. 
the very thing Jesus was intent on accomplishing and proclaiming, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not even that good, really nice neighbor that you know who's just so sweet and kind. They are not perfectly sweet and kind. Not the greatest philanthropist who's given away millions and millions of money if he doesn't know Jesus Christ. It's all rubbish because all our righteousness are as filthy rags to the Lord, thus saith the Lord. There is no universalism. People are dying and going to hell without Jesus. And the very reason he came was so that people wouldn't have to. And he needs fishers of men. The word anthropos covers men, women, children, everything in between, if there is anything in between. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is this the Jesus you know? Don't answer that too quickly. Again, as Barna just has so much data and so much research concerning the beliefs of Christendom, many people flippantly go, well, of course I know Jesus. I've, I grew up in the church. I've been raised in the church. And I'm still very active in the church. In fact, I'm putting on a bazaar next weekend. And I'm going to be there from morning till night. And you find out what church they go to. And they go to a church that hardly believes much of anything that this actually teaches, much less the Jesus of the Bible. Oh, they believe in a Jesus that they have concocted or that somebody has concocted for them that fits their own proclivities towards sin. It's a very convenient kind of Jesus. And those are the ones that Jesus says to, you know, on that day, you will say to me, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that and didn't we blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, I will say to you on that day, depart from me. You doers of evil, of iniquity, of sin, I never knew you. I never knew you. So I'm not talking about being enamored with this culturally acceptable Jesus. For Pete's sake, Muslims believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. You will be hard-pressed to find anyone in any religion that doesn't believe in Jesus. They just don't believe in the real Jesus of the Scriptures. So the big question is, do you believe in this Jesus? Because if you don't, they're ready for an eternity separated from God and His influence, and your friends won't be there. At least not that you'll be aware of. Okay, then. Let me ask Paul, Hallie, one of our elders, come on up and close our time in prayer. Let's stand, please. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, in the book of Mark, uh, amazing is used many times, Lord, that they are amazed at God's uh, miracles and His presence, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, in each of our lives that we continue to be amazed when we read his book and when we see the things that he does in our lives and not allow ourselves to be commonplace, to think of God's word as commonplace, or even coming to church as commonplace, Lord. But I just pray that uh, 
Lord, that you would fill us with your amazement of who you are and all that you've done for us and continue to do for us every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.